know why I'm so passionate about music to code by? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than 4 bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only 3 bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1352, recorded Wednesday, August 24th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks, this is Carl Franklin. And it's Richard Campbell. Sitting across from each other. This is very luxurious, my friend. My goodness. How many times have you come to Pwop Studios for us to do a face-to-face recording, actually? I don't know. Maybe a dozen? I don't think that many. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's been 15 years, man. So yeah. We've done a few, but, well, maybe not 15 years, but more than 10. It's just so nice not to have to fiddle with technology yeah, all the a, time. a bunch less technology, and... uh I mean, I really focus when we're remote and sort of picturing, you know, what we're talking about. Yeah. Being able to see you, is, it's very luxurious. Yeah. And a little scary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we are prone to silly when we can see each other. Yeah. You know, you're a little more relaxed. That's it. Uh, Richard, I have something you know all about for my Better Know Framework. Awesome. <laughs> buddy what do you got yeah it's a toy that you introduced me to oh i don't have one but i really like what you've done with it and this is the rico theta oh the theta s i showed you it today that's right right we did a we did one of those 360 photos and stuck it on facebook because we worked together all day right so this is a camera that you took to your arctic expedition i think you said you bought it just for the expedition well you know i've been watching this marketplace for a while Mm -hmm. and this just was the right size you know the challenge is and i'll talk about this when we talk in the show the challenge of traveling with a bunch of pro photographers with literally five digit numbers worth of camera equipment it's like i'm not even gonna bring a camera like what the hell's the point right? right and then i saw this thing and i'm like my little 400 dollars camera is cooler than all of your yeah. stuff and what's neat so it's got two bubble lenses one on each side and it can actually see in all directions when you put you know composite these two images together you get a 360 view and what's very cool is facebook has a viewer where you can just scroll around with your mouse in any direction see the Look up, look down, look this way and that way all around in in literally 360 degrees. Yeah, it's, it makes a JPEG file that if you saw it in a raw viewer, it's just two Looks weird. circular images. Yeah. And then different viewers sort of bend that to try and make it a little more viewable. But uh, but Facebook really understands it. Yeah. Now, the most interesting thing about those, that Facebook viewer is if you view it on like an iPad mm-hmm. or an Android phone, maybe mm. even your iPhone, mm. 
it will use the accelerometer in your phone so that you can sort of pan around with your phone. Okay, so you probably have to have the Facebook app, which I actually don't use because it's really annoying. Yeah, yeah. that's probably it. But, you know, this is the sort of thing is clearly Facebook is deeply invested in like the 360 imagery. Yeah, uh, well, Oculus, they bought them. Totally. They yeah. own Oculus. Uh, there's a lot of the conversation going on about, and I would like to see this. I would actually like to put on a pair of glasses and see one of my own photos mm. from that trip. From the viewpoint of the camera. And an Oculus Rift. So you're actually moving your head around and now, yeah. Space doesn't move. No. Your view does. That's yeah. Right. And the way I used that camera when we were there was that I put it on the end of a selfie stick. Yeah. Set it on a timer and then stuck it over the side of the boat pointing at a polar bear. Yeah. So you got a picture of the polar bear and then you got a picture back of the boat and all of us staring at the polar bear going, holy cow, that's a polar bear. And you told me earlier today that I probably shouldn't buy one of these because it's a little outdated now, isn't it? Or there's new stuff coming out. Yeah, the market's moving so fast in this space right now. And because really, if you're going to go to the VR picture viewing thing, mm. you want 3D as well, right? right this right. is 360, but it's not 3D. True. And, and people confuse them, but this is a, an important difference between the two, right? Yeah. You need that parallax effect to really give you the depth of field and so forth. Mm. Although... From a mathematical perspective, that's a really hard problem. If you go looking up, Facebook is making a 3D 360 camera. Really? It's going to be thousands of dollars. Okay. And it's a big device. This is going to have four lenses then, right? It's going to have even more than that. It has cameras all around it. Oh. And the bigger thing is it's figuring out what combinations of cameras to use based on where you're looking to be able to give you the 3D effect oh, as well. Sure. Okay. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. The exponentially harder problem. Much, much more difficult problem. Yeah. So, mm. and of course, the first ones that you build like this are going to be very hard to do. Yeah. And then as it gets solved, we'll come up with less and less expensive solutions. Like that's what I liked about the Ricoh. Admittedly, like a $400 camera. So yeah, still, yeah, yeah. For a toy, but nicely refined, you know, size of a candy bar yeah. and just took pictures. Like there was not a lot of fussing around. So what we're going to do is Richard's going to put some of the, these 360 photos from his Arctic expedition and one that we actually took here at Pop Studios earlier today mm -hmm. and put them on our .NET Rocks Facebook page, which you can get to at fb.netrocks.com. We'll make sure that happens. Nice. All right. And I have included a link to that Facebook 360 3D camera. Yeah. So that's under development right now. Very cool. All right, Richard, who's talking to us today? Uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1325. No, not 1352. That's the show 1325. <laughs> uh, which embarrassingly, this is a show we did back in July. I did not get tagged with the geek out tag. Oh, no. For a couple of months. Oh, no. And I just realized it and tagged it up. And so, because I know there's a bunch of people who are now only downloading the geek outs. Right. And so I apologize. You may have missed that show, but surprise, you got an extra show because that was about that. That was a recap and revisit of the thorium molten salt reactors. Mm -hmm. So I had all that new data from the fourth generation facility and Kirk Sorensen's latest research. And we really have to talk about the, the fuel reprocessing flow. Like yeah. When we first talked about molten salt reactors a couple of years ago, yeah. I said, big problem here is going to be how do you reprocess the fuel? Yeah. Because it has to be done all the time. And a lot of that is now solved and it's remote 
remarkably well-known science, mm-hmm. which is which is good news. Mm. Uh, and so, it's, of course, as soon as you put the show forward, people get really, really excited. Yeah. And uh, some awesome comments here. This is from Christian Edland, who said, uh, Hi, Carl and Richard. Thanks for another great show. It's always been fun to listen to both Geek Outs and normal shows. Is that uh, what those are, the normal shows? Okay. I think these are the normal shows, actually. Especially being a non-developer, but it makes me know enough words to make me sound like I know my stuff when I'm around our developers. .NET rocks, making you full of crap. <laughs> And sounding good. Making the right noises. Yeah. At least enough so I can recognize when they're trying to bullshit me. So he's thinking the same way you yes, are. Yes, totally. <laughs> uh, a few notes on the show. Uh, regarding batteries, I've been working with the Ferris Sea Energy Company. So that's the Ferry Islands, which are oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, off the coast of the of the UK. Yep. And in, back in 2015, they were working heavily on investing in a battery as a backup solution for a big wind park. And by big, I mean huge compared to the total load on the islands. And he does provide a link to the the technical side of this. So this is basically battery backup for Mm. wind farms. Mm. Um, One of the challenges, of course, being that it gets too windy there. Mm. And and the wind turbines can only handle so much speed. So they're actually running battery backup. And he went on to say, the battery is not, I mean, it's energy storage as such, but it's a backup in case the wind dies or overspeeds. Right. And they will have enough backup to get the diesel engines and water turbines running to replace that power mm. if necessary. So really battery as bridging between the different power solutions. I think this is the right way to go for batteries for now with the current technology. It's an illusion to think we could use it for longer periods. Right. Um, it is a problem. They're not durable enough. They take up too much space. But there are, you know, Germany's building some big battery banks as well. Like the stuff's going on. Hey, did you hear about the wind farm that they're doing a few miles off the coast of Block Island? That is the first offshore wind farm built in the United States. Yeah. And so Block Island's sort of, um, I don't know, sort of halfway off of Connecticut and uh, Long Island and Rhode Island. It's right in that area. And and it actually is a summer home to people like Stephen Wright. Uh, Oh, the comedian. Yeah. And this is the same house that uh, somebody broke in and replaced all the furniture with exact replicas. (laughs) Of course it is. But, But basically the people that summer there and that live there year round even don't have to see these eyesore windmills, but they're huge, they but huge. they're so far away. You can't see them. I would also point out there's exactly five of them. Yes. There's only five. There's only five, but they're the six megawatt one. So it's a 30 megawatt plant, which is kind of astonishingly huge. Yeah. And the turbines are huge. Uh, over a hundred feet. Oh, easily. They talk about wind blades lengths, like 747 wingspan. Kind That's of thing. yeah. Six megawatts. Like you can almost land a helicopter on the back of that turbine. It's yeah. so big. Crazy. So, yeah, they are they are giant. Yep. Uh, back to Christian's comment. He said, number two, regarding steam turbines, which we talked about mm-hmm. um, with the molten salt reactors, you mentioned that they are open cycle, unlike CO2 turbines. All the major power plants I know of in Denmark and Germany are closed cycle. Yes, there's a lot of closed cycle yeah. turbines. But as anything else, it acts on the Carnot cycle, and you need a hot side and a cold reservoir, so they do cool the water for the turbines against other water. Just okay. through a heat exchanger, uh, typically using river water, which is one of the reasons that power plants are invariably positioned beside right. flowing water in one form or another. Right. Uh, and of course, all diagrams he's found for CO2 turbine systems also require a cooling unit. Of course they do, right? Yep. You've got to, you heat up the CO2 to an amazing pressure and then you have to cool it back down somehow. Yeah. Uh, I fully agree with you on the problems of the phase change of water because sometimes when you have water propagate back to steam and so forth, it, it creates some interesting problems around damaging blades. That sure. Kind of thing. It also has some good properties as well. When you condense it after the turbine, you create a vacuum. 
mm. which you really do. And they actually have that higher pressure differential because of that. And it creates additional stages in the turbine. Mm. Like one of the advantages of steam turbines while they have their problems mm. is they're very well known and refined. They yeah. are really good at extracting every bit of energy from that. If we could just create some energy to heat the water so that it steams, everything else sort of takes care of itself. Yeah. It's just interesting to think about... You know, typically they only get water up to about 300 degrees Celsius under pressure. Mm. And when you're talking about molten salt reactors where your salt flow is 800 degrees Celsius, like you just have an opportunity to pass a lot more energy. So does yeah. that mean more steam turbines or is there something better? Or is there something else you can do with that energy? Yeah. And that's where the, the CO2 ideas really mm. came into play. Now, admittedly, and we talked about this way back in the first molten salt reactor, this combining of three different things. Using molten salt as your carrier for the reactor. Right. Using thorium instead of uranium. Yep. And then using different turbine systems. And you really, you know, you're you're amplifying the risk mm -hmm. with more different variations like this. Yeah. Um, although the more I studied it more, I like, you want to use thorium. Yeah. No matter what, the other two parts do. Yeah. The, you really want to use thorium and you really should use it in the molten salt reactor because the, the thorium fuel chain is just so much cleaner. Uranium-233 is a really good version of uranium. Mm. It doesn't have the plutonium byproducts. Mm -hmm. It burns more efficiently. Its fissions are very reliable and you can only really get it from thorium and it needs molten salt to make that work together. So those two I'm pretty comfortable with. And isn't it reusable? Well, you burn it all. You can burn it all. Yeah. So, yeah. It, you you know, the big thing was... You're going to have a lot of waste. Yeah. Instead of 35 tons of fuel to make a gigawatt of power, you're talking about one ton of fuel to make a gigawatt right. of power. Right. But you should go back and listen to the thorium uh, yeah, show. Yeah, we're sort of doing that whole show. Yeah. And to Christian's fourth point, I am sitting next to a traditional power plant that runs at 592 degrees Celsius. That would be over 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow, that's hot. And 290 bar. Bar is a measurement of pressure. Okay. One bar would be atmosphere at sea level. So 290 times sea level air pressure. Wow. Bar, barometer. That's where that comes from, right? Well, I guess, but you pressure. Know, it's just a different measurement system. So the whole temperature and how to handle it is not something I would be too worried about with CO2 turbines. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Mm -hmm. That's very hot and very high pressure. Yeah. It's not miles away from what is already being used in industrial settings. Hmm. So, you know, it's nice to hear from someone who's clearly working in the space and it's like, you know, the numbers you're throwing around aren't voodoo. Yeah. Right. We were talking about 800 degrees Celsius with the molten salt. He's working with 600 degrees Celsius right. and higher pressures than anything we talked about. Right. Although, admittedly, the, the primary loops at one bar. That's the great <laughs> thing about molten salt reactors. One bar one is your bar. friend. Yeah. Uh, so, Christian, if you haven't noticed, you kicked off a whole bunch of conversation. Thank you so much for your efforts. Mostly one way. Yeah. That's okay. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And you should definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We make pebbles out of them. Pebble bed reactor? Yeah. Nice one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, See? Look at you with your callbacks. Yeah, that's what I did. See what I did there? <laughs> You're all in. I love it. <laughs> this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Stackify. Hey, you know, .NET developers are writing better code these past few months. Well, the thousands that are using Prefix are anyway. Stackify built Prefix to rapidly improve their own apps. Now they've decided to share it with the rest of us, which is great. No .NET profiler is easier, prettier, or more powerful, and people are catching on. Twitter is a flutter with stories of saved bacon. 
Go to bit.ly slash get prefix and we'll hook you up with a free download. Okay, what are we here to actually talk about today? Well, this is by request, I mean, from you, as well as a bunch of other listeners, because uh, I went on an expedition this summer. Now, you and your friends just said, let's go see the polar bears before they all die. That's basically what we said. Yeah. Uh, You know, actually, the catalyst with this was our friend Kimberly Tripp. Yep. The SQL Server goddess. Yeah. uh, Who has been a couple of times before. Mm. So she travels with a few folks, but she's madly, she and Paul are madly into photography. Yeah. And they have underwater photography equipment and above water photography equipment. Like mm. they're, they're serious. Yeah. They got drones. They got all these things. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. They're, they're big on taking photos. They've wow. got their like Canon professional cards. They can rent lenses from them and that sort of wow. thing. Wow. And so they were the, uh, expedition leaders for this particular trip and they wanted to travel their friends. So uh, my wife and I went, Scott Stanfield and his wife and the, and the kids, they all went. Oh. Uh, so wow, what fun to be on it. It's a very small boat. The boat we went on was pretty much the smallest boat you can get huh. in the professional charter space. Now this wasn't an icebreaker, was it? No, but it had an ice hull. So the ship itself is the Malmo. It's yeah. Swedish with a Swedish crew, of course. a crew of seven. Uh, we had a naturalist and a photographer on board as well. Mm. Uh, and the ship is from the 40s. It was actually originally built to be a government buoy maintenance ship. Hmm. So it was designed to go in the Arctic then. It, it, it was designed to deal with pack ice. Yeah. And so the shape of the bow is kind of funny. It's sort of a high sloping bow and very beefy. Uh, mm. Double hulled. So it's not a true icebreaker. It literally hits the ice and shatters it as it's going forward. Okay. This boat would actually slide up onto the ice and then break it with its weight. Oh, neat. And it could break up to about a meter of ice. No kidding. About three feet of ice at a time. And then it would. What it, happens if it slides up onto, say, a hundred meter ice? Well, I don't think you get up a hundred meter, but we clearly went above the meter level. Yeah. And so then we just didn't break through. But then what happens? Does it just slide back? You slide back off. That must be kind of bumpy. The whole experience of feeling the boat lift up and then sort of wobble as it drops <sighs> through the ice, not normal. That's then, not the way boats are supposed to feel. Did you bring your Dramamine? It's very drill. Um, we had a few people seasick. I was not one of them. No. And I have been seasick. Yeah. Like I'm, I've done enough sailing, enough time on the water to know perfectly well, every person has their sea. Nobody right. is immune. There's right. just no such thing. Right. Uh, we didn't have a lot of dramatic seasickness. The The crew was really great about keeping us out of rough water. Good. And so we had a pretty good time. Now, the Arctic Ocean, and I highly recommend you look at a map of the Arctic Ocean because the Mercator map just distorts. Yeah, the you have to Earth. look from the top down, don't You've you? You've got to look at the top down. Yeah. And so you started, then you sort of can kind of get a sense of things are closer together than you think. Mm. And our route to go to this expedition was through the Svalbard Islands. So Svalbard is actually part of Norway. Now, we go to Norway every year, right? right. It's the NDC uh, Oslo. So we flew to Oslo, and then from Oslo, you fly up to the Svalbard Islands. And the Svalbard Islands are very far north. They are in line with the northern edge of Greenland. Wow. Now, these are these are interesting islands. They, arguably, the first people to see these islands were probably Vikings. Uh-huh. Uh, but they were really only properly mapped and kind of claimed by a Dutchman named William Barents in 1594. Wow. He would later be the the source of the name the Barents Sea, which is right in the same area. Oh, yeah, sure. And this was in, you know, 1594, this was the age of the uh, the the Dutch East Indies Company. And they were trying to find a route to China 
going north. Going north, yeah. You know, the same way you had the Northwest Passage. Right. They were trying to find the Northeast Passage. Mm-hmm. So he never found a way through because at that time, there just was no way through. Right. But what he did find was a lot of whales. Mm. So there's a whale called the right whale. Yeah. You ever heard that name? Do you know why yeah. it's called the right whale? I never knew. Because it's the correct whale to kill. Oh, wow. What was important about right whales versus fin whales or humpback whales is that right whales tended not to dive when they got hit with harpoons. And when they died, they floated. Oh. So they were a lot easier to handle. So they were the right whale to And kill. if they floated, they were probably had a lot of body fat. Exactly. Which means that there's a lot of oil there for now. To, for you to harvest. And in that 16th century, there was a specific breed of the right whale that lived primarily around Greenland. And it was especially slow and fat and oily. Mm. And so they hunted whales uh, up there extensively to the point where they wiped them out. Yeah. So the interesting thing about the Svalbard Island, Svalbard being a Norwegian name, mm-hmm. is the main island is called Spitsbergen, which is a Dutch name. Yeah. Because it was really the Dutch that named it in that case. Okay. Now, we flew into the Svalbard Islands to a town called Longyearbyen. And Longyearbyen is about 2,500 people. It almost looks like a ski lodge type place. Mm. Like six bars, one grocery <laughs> store, four hotels. Kind of like uh, Northern Exposure Town. Absolutely. You know, Roslyn. But it's yeah. at 79 degrees north. Wow, that's so, far up I there. mean, the first thing you discover is in August when we were there, sun doesn't set. It just goes around in the sky. Is that the northernmost city in Norway? It's the northernmost town in the world, over a thousand population. Wow. So it's about as far north as you can so get. So that's the end of civilization right there. In some ways, yes. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing is that while we were still in Norway, we were no longer in Schengen. Which is? Well, Schengen is the European Union uh, open border system. Mm-hmm. So because Svalbard is such a uh, northernly most island. There have been Russians around those islands for a long time. Oh, sure. And so they've been doing fur trading and things for, you know, a thousand years kind of thing. Nobody's mm-hmm. really sure how long. Mm-hmm. In fact, the second largest town on Svalbard is a Ukrainian town. Huh. And really, before the, all the tourism stuff started up there, it was a coal mining place. Mm-hmm. And the coal mining uh, largely shut down by the 1970s. It was just too expensive to actually pull the coal out there. Although they still have one mine running, and it actually only mines enough coal to run the power plant for the towns. So we're actually talking solid ground here. There, there's soil. This is island. It's rock mostly. Okay. I mean, these are places that were covered by glaciers yeah. during the ice age. I was going to say there isn't probably any chance for anything to grow. It's great. The, there's more life there than you think. There are reindeer up there, Arctic foxes, a tremendous number of seabirds hmm. and polar bears. But and is there any vegetation? Yeah, it's but it's the uh, the tundra type thing. Yeah. So one of the things we had to invest in on this trip were these big muck boots, like ray right up your calf, uh-huh. waterproof, insulated. And I stepped in some muck <laughs> walking around. <laughs> the, we went and visited reindeer, you know, on one on one of the islands. Yeah. And it's pretty mucky up there. Yeah. But I found a nice dry spot in the sun and actually fell asleep for a while. So wow. pictures of me dozing on the Arctic tundra. So it was good fun up there. Well, Richard, before we go on, you know what time it is now, right? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to bloof my far for girlfriend Dershiber. <laughs> oh, you've gotten very Swedish. And blurber for ats. Nice. Some fin gin. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. 
But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Mike Saransky. Congratulations, Mike. Yes. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for you, Mike. And just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club, Mike just won the D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at Developer Express. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, Answer a few questions and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. You know, the other thing we saw while we were just outside of Long Year, Ben, is the Global Seed Bank. Oh, I heard about this. Yeah. Now, this is where they have a collection of seeds that... All if over there's the world. A, from all over the world, and if there's ever a nuclear war or whatever, and there's uh, people can get to the seed bank, they can take these back to temperate climate. and uh, It's not even necessarily the end of the world. Like right now, they're tapping the seed bank to get uh, different banana seeds hmm. because of the banana blight that's wiping out the Cavendish banana. Right. So arguably the la- the the banana before the Cavendish. So it's a backup system. This is exactly it. And you're not allowed in it. But, huh. you, but but we happened, when we went there to take a picture of the sign, mm. there happened to be a maintenance guy there. <laughs> this is going to be a good story. And really, he's a refrigerator repairman. Let's be very clear, right? This is just a big refrigeration system. And, and I said, you're not allowed to let us in there. He goes, no, I can't let you in. He says, <laughs> you don't want to go in. I'm like, why? He says, because you'll be very disappointed. It's three rooms. Two of them are empty. And one of them is full of shelves with rubber buckets on it. Wow. That's all it's in there. It's a shed. Yeah. It's a shed. It's a tool shed. In permafrost. Yeah. Right? With some additional temperature regulation to keep it cold all the time mm. so that they can preserve seeds for an extended period of time. Wow. There's wow. not much more to it. And I have a great 360 photo of that, so I'll, I'll throw that up there for okay. people to see. But it was really fun to actually see that. Before you go on, I got to know, did you go to an ice bar? There were no ice bars there. but or there an were, ice hotel. There were bar bars. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. But no, it's it's actually too cold up there. Yeah. You know, although this is the middle of summer. It's the warmest time. So it's about five degrees Celsius, maybe 20 Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. The sun never sets. Right. Right. Which you don't. I spent about two weeks with no sunset. Right. Just light all the time. Closest I've been to that is Oslo in the summertime. Sure. Yeah. And when we go for the conference. Yeah. It's like perpetual dusk. Yeah. This was, the, the scary part here is you're so far north that your magnetic compass is actually pointing west. Wow. And the sun never goes down. And you're under so far under the northern lights that your GPS doesn't work that well. That's interesting. So it's really hard to know where you are. If you don't know what time it is, you really don't know which way any direction is because the sun doesn't go down. There's no east, no west. And it doesn't the, do anything. the sun doesn't give you enough of a, of a visual cue as to what time it is? No, because it doesn't go up or down. It goes around. But if it goes around, there still might be a way to measure it though. Yeah. No, but you have to know which direction you're pointing. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. you need a landmark. And once we got away from wow. Svalbard Islands and into the ice pack, it's just ice as far as you can see. Yeah. But before we went up to the ice pack, 
the one other thing to talk about in the Svalbard Islands and the whole Arctic expedition were the explorers, the adventurers. So one of our first stops after we sailed out of Longyearbyen overnight was a little bay called uh, Virgahamna. Hmm. And Virgohamna is like, it's now a museum site, actually. Okay. But it is a little rocky bay on a tiny little dreadful stony island mm-hmm. off the northwest coast of Svalbard, mm-hmm. where like next stop going west is Greenland. Yeah. Right? There's nothing there, but there's about 300 years of human history there. Yeah. So, you know, those early whalers that wiped out the, the, uh, the, the Greenland right whale, this is where they boiled down the blubber. So wow. those are the remains of the, the big cooking system that they used. Wow. So tell me about the expedition. So after we spent a couple of days in Long Earbin and sort of got our bearings and enjoyed that experience and loaded up all our gear, we got on board the ship and got settled in that. And this is not a cruise ship. This is pretty. Yeah, it's rough. Basic. It's, I mean, it's warm. Mm-hmm. The, the beds are all single beds. They had tea. And they had tea and actually a very good cook. We were very well fed. Oh, I heard about that. This yeah. guy, this guy baked <laughs> fresh. Ro- he was a Swedish chef with the Swedish accent. Yeah. There were days where it was hard not to giggle. Yeah. He, well. He called the vegetarians vegetarians. Okay. Uh, but he baked fresh rolls every day. Wow. He'd make a cake every morning. Like, wow. We ate like kings, man. Like we were well fed. That's a big bowl of diabetes yeah, right there. Yeah, a whole lot of it. We, <laughs> we had a good time. But uh, our first stop after an overnight sail was a little island in the northwest corner of Svalbard uh, in a bay in it called Vigahamna. Now, this is a mm. whole lot of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. Right? But this was uh, a point where a lot of adventurers staged from. I read a book by Bill Bryson mm-hmm. who went there. Yes, I think that was the name of the town that he went. It's, there's nothing there. It's an open air museum, right? Yeah. Everything is protected because there's about 300 years of human history there. Right. So all the way back to the 1600s, the whalers would stage out of this island. So they'd kill right whales and they drag them ashore and then they render the blubber down into oil into barrels. Yeah. So those are the remains of the big furnaces they used for rendering. Mm. But because the land was sort of unowned at the time, they, they wouldn't settle on this being Norwegian land until the 1920s. Okay. So uh, it was all who got there first. So eventually after a few years with whale oil being such an important product at the time, sure. people tried to overwinter there. Yeah. So they started building houses and things on the site and they mostly died. Yeah. But a few survived and, and, but there's graves and things there as well. And of course it's permafrost. So the mm. graves are not well buried or anything. Permafrost means it never melts. It hasn't melted ever. Ever. Yeah. Because it's just so cold, right? Yeah. Even in the middle of summer, it's still below freezing. This is what they do. They, they drill cores. They drill way down into the permafrost and see what little, uh, clues they can tell and going back in time. You find air bubbles and stuff deep down, you know, deeper you go, the further back in pe- history. But it's a goes. map. Yeah. Map going back in time. Yeah. Effectively. Yeah. So just the debris is really interesting. And, yeah. uh, this was the site of a number of attempts to try and get to the North Pole first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and w- the, the sort of, a most famous story of them all was a Swedish engineer by the name of Salomon August Andre, okay. who was building a hydrogen balloon, hmm. staging out of Vigahamna to try and float across the North Pole. Wow. Now, the chances of the winds ever working well for you are like zero. You know, this reminds me of a Darwin Awards uh, story, doesn't it? But, you know, what it really made me think about is how much, I mean, in the late 1800s, you know, the end of the 19th century, these were your 
your athletes. These were your heroes, right? right? Sure. And the Lindbergh of their day. Exactly. This was a big money proposition. Sure. Uh, lots of hype, lots of newspapers and so forth. And so they built uh, a launching platform up there for a hydrogen balloon mm -hmm. for three people. And they were carrying things like tuxedos so that they'd be properly dressed when they succeeded and were received in Russia. Right. Like just kind of madness. Of course, it's a little more, it took them over, they, the first year they set up, they didn't get ready in time. So yeah. they literally had to come back the next year. Then they finally fly the thing, not understanding what the cold conditions would do to it. Mm -hmm. And they were overweight. They'd actually- Throw out the tuxedos. Well, I think they had <laughs> they held on to those. They had intended to navigate by dragging ropes on the ice, huh. but that was slowing them down so much it actually made the basket hit the water at one point. So oh, they started geez. cutting all that stuff away. Wow. Uh, they were supposed to communicate with carrier pigeon and boys. Boys? Yeah, little little chunks of cork with messages packed. Oh, buoys. I'm sorry. That we can we say I'll call them boys. You can well, call we them call buoys. boys or little men in in America. Nice. Sorry. <laughs> So, and a couple of them were found saying everything was fine, but the reality is this balloon r flew roughly for three days. Yeah, wow. And then it finally crashed on the ice. But at mm. that point, they had enough supplies and things that they were basically looking at walking out off of the ice. Huh. So they spent three weeks camped by the wreck, hoping somebody would find them. Wow. When that didn't work, they packed up their sleds and so forth. And these guys were not survivalists. They were adventurers. So sure. They weren't particularly well-equipped to do this, yeah. but they were well-armed. And so they shot polar bears and shot wallers and so forth and fed themselves on the ice. Is this going to end like a Shackleton story? Uh, yeah, pretty much. And it, eh, it's an issue. sad. Well, the reality is they left in July, and in mm. July, it's light all the time, mm. right? Mm -hmm. There's four months of sunshine that far north, but between August and October, you go from completely light all the time to completely dark all right, the time. Right, that's true. So they finally end up on an ice flow that hits land, a little land called White Island, which we'd actually get to go to, mm. and then went ashore. It was October. Mm -hmm. They had taken photographs. And kept journals the whole time. They'd spent months on the ice. Mm. They didn't, they were, but they were worried they wouldn't be found. And within days of being on land, they were all dead. Wow. And their bodies weren't found for more than 30 years. Wow. So it wasn't until the 1930s they found it. And they developed the film. They had the photos. And they've been trying to figure out ever since. Like, what, what happened? killed these yeah. guys? One thought was trichinosis. One of the dangers of eating polar bear meat is yeah. that polar bears tend to have, uh, uh, parasites, yep. but uh, they were able to do some measurements off the clothing and things that they don't think it's trichinosis. It might have been depression. Really? That continuous darkness. Because it was dark. Continuous darkness and yeah. no idea of when you're going to get rescued. And and again, these are guys are not built for survival. They're built for adventure. Mm. And they've already been into this. This was supposed to be like a two-week trip. A three-hour tour. Exactly. A three-hour tour. Hey, here's a fun fact. Did you know the town that I grew up in, mm -hmm. Mystic, Connecticut, and even the town where we are right now, New London, Connecticut, were both whaling sure. cities in the, uh, geez, what, 17 and 1800s? Yeah. And when whale oil was the primary source of fuel, this was... This, this was oil. This was Texas. Yep. Right this here. This was oil. And so the oldest surviving wooden whaling ship is here in Mystic, Connecticut. No it's kidding. called the Charles W. Morgan, and it's at the Mystic Seaport. And I know... You probably know all about this, and everybody here in this town knows about it, but sure. I forget that sometimes people around the world, you know, aren't hip to that. But yes, I grew up in the, in this town. 
Yeah. And, yeah. and whaling was big business. This is how the world was functioning. That's right. Before we figured out how to take oil out of the ground. Yep. And now we're moving on past that, too. Yep, yep. Uh, there were a number of other attempts. The nuclear is that particular one failed. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, the first one to actually make it across the pole in an airship was a guy named Roald Amundsen, who's mm. quite famous. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that was not, but that was until 1926. Uh, it was good fun. You know, just an interesting explorer. Walking around on the site very carefully. There were certain areas you could walk through and you couldn't because it is a museum site. Now, I want to know when you got so far north that the the lines between land and sea were blurred. Well, like, as soon as we pretty much headed from there north. Okay. And when, when the first polar bear we saw was actually swimming between two islands. So mm. right in the northernmost part of Svalbard Islands is an area called the Seven Islands. Okay. And out of the blue, they call polar bear and we go up on the deck and there is a polar bear motoring, cutting a wake through the water. Wow. Polar bears can swim really fast. Wow. And he was making his way towards an island and he was stopping and looking at us like, why are you bothering me? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the thing about polar bears is they're top tier predators and they really have nothing they're afraid of. They're yeah. actually pretty curious. But we didn't stick around to see that polar bear for, for very long. He was making his way to an island. We headed for the pack ice. Now, and pack ice being... I mean, pack ice is exactly what you think it is. It is... Packed ice. Yes. Chunks of ice, uh, mostly relatively flat. It looks like land almost. It just goes off in all directions. Okay. And it gradually gets denser and denser the further up you go into it. Okay. And you, there are cracks in it. There are gaps in it. So you can sort of sail around it. Mostly you push it out of the way. Okay. Uh, but eventually gets big enough that you actually have to break through pieces of it. So right. we would ride up and, and break our way through. But we were looking for polar bears. Now, did the captain say anything about, you know, when we came up here a couple of years ago, this was, uh, you know, we would have already pit this ice, but we're still going through the ocean, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, the ice is definitely retreating more and more. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it used to be in the like long year bin where we staged out of. For several months of the year, you couldn't get in and out of Long Year, but because there was so much pack ice in the strait. Oh, wow. But there's now, there's never pack ice in the strait at Long Year bin anymore. Okay. Uh, so, but the ice moves around a lot. Yes. And, uh, and there's a lot of life on the ice. What was interesting about pushing our way through the ice is that we would be followed by a ton of seabirds because underneath that ice are little fish. And you guys are disturbing the ice every and exposing the fish. Exactly. So every time we'd bump a piece of ice, you'd see all these seabirds hit the water. Wow. And, and grab the fish that we were They're really, glad you were yeah. there. Well, we were very popular <laughs> with them, actually. They would follow us pretty closely. Wow. Uh, and after a whole day going upward into the ice, hmm. we finally hit a point where we, we almost couldn't go any further, right? We weren't breaking through the ice anymore. And that's when we started spotting polar bears. Okay. So that means it was mostly unmovable pack ice? Yeah, so it is now big pack ice. It's heavier. It's a little bit taller. Yeah. It's not perfectly flat. You know, the ice breaks and shifts and pokes up and freezes. And, right. And so, but it's not towering mountains either. So you saw most of the polar bears hanging out on what would they, they would consider a landmass. So they're, polar bears don't hibernate. And Wait a minute. I thought they did. Polar bears don't hibernate. Really? And they, they, they're able to hunt all of the time. As long as the only reason that bears hibernate is they don't have food. Mm. And polar bears on ice can always find food. In sure. fact, one would argue that global warming has increased the available food in the Arctic Ocean. Right. Because warmer water means more plankton. More plankton means more krill. More krill means more fish, more whales, more seals. But the, the real worry about polar bears is that they're running out of land mass. Let's yeah. get to that, right? Yeah. So the, all the polar bears we saw on the ice were fat. 
mm. and filled. We saw one kill a seal. It grabbed, you know. They were the one percent. Yeah. They, well, they're the bulk <laughs> of the, 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 the bulk of the polar yeah. bears stay on the ice. That was a joke. It's tougher on the island. Sure. On land, but, uh, and I'll talk about the polar bears in more detail in a minute, but. The, what was interesting about the polar bears is that they they were all curious about the boat. They were completely unafraid. Wow. Uh, but they weren't approaching each other. Interesting. So at one point, we saw like eight polar bears at once. Huh. Using binoculars. They're scattered around us in all directions. And they're they're looking at us. And then they're moving towards us and realizing other bears are moving towards us and sort of jockeying to figure out who's going to approach the boat first. Oh. And so we had several different polar bears approach the boat, but all separately at different times. Interesting. So they have this social pecking order then. They do. And apparently polar bears can be pretty social with each other. But the reality is, as a dominant predator, their only threat of existence is another polar bear. Mm. And so it's not worth the risk to approach them. And at least up in the pack ice, none of them are hungry. Hmm. Right. There's lots of food. They were up just there. curious. Right. Uh, and like I said, that we even saw a kill up there. You saw a kill? Yes. So the seals tend to pull out of the water. Right. When their bellies are full, it's easier to digest sitting on land I or see. sitting on ice because it's warmer. And that's when they are it's, susceptible to polar vulnerable. bear attacks. Exactly. And so the polar bears, polar bears are stealth hunters, mm. right? They, they match the ice. They're super quiet. They're very bright. Mm. And so they hit the seals from behind and, and kill them on the ice mm. and eat them. Yep. Uh, and so we actually witnessed that whole process. Wow. And, and uh, you know, you're talking about a 1500 pair taking out a 400 pound seal. It's yeah. pretty, it's pretty quick. This ain't no discovery channel. Yeah. It's uh, it ain't pretty. And uh, it makes a big mess. Yeah. Uh, one of my most things that I, th- I thought was really interesting and intelligent was, A, they swim very fast. And yeah. they're moving between these different chunks of ice. So they mm-hmm. would go into the water, zip across the water, and they'd come out. And they'd walk wet for about 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then they'd roll on the on the ice. And to sort of uh, freeze the outer coat? Well, the outer coat's already frozen after a few mi- after a few seconds. Okay. So they wait until the water freezes and they roll on the ice to knock all the ice off themselves. Oh, and then they keep going. Smart. Yeah, very efficient. Wide feet. Yeah. And uh, and curious. So we got some great pictures of them. You know, did they, how close did they get to the boat? They got right up to the hull. Really? They're trying to just try to take a look. Were they trying to climb up the hull? They never tried, but they got right up to the hull. And wow. Look at us. So, and again, I'll throw a couple of these pictures up. Yeah, this yeah. is where that, that, Rico camera was awesome. I've only seen a couple of pictures from of polar bears that you posted on your page. Yeah. But you must have a lot. I took a few. Um, I mean, the guys with the big cameras took tons. But in the end, it's like you can only selfie so much. Did uh, Paul and Kim publish a blog post or anything about it? Uh, they're still organizing their photos. I think Kim wow. took something like 4,000 photos. Oh, my God. So, yeah, it takes a while to sort of cull all of that. Sure and, does. And start it out. Um Meanwhile, the database needs re-indexing. Come on, Kim. Get it together. (laughs) Uh, We also got a chance to take some look at some walrus. Okay. Uh, And walrus are bigger than you think. Okay. Uh, Walrus are, you know. When I think of a walrus, I think like grimace size, you know. Now, you're talking about an animal pushing 4,000 pounds and 12 feet long. He was the size of our zodiac. Really? And they're a top-tier predator, too, although they only eat mollusks and shrimp and things primarily. 12 feet long. They're huge, man. Wow. And the same thing. So they eat, they like eating clams. That's what they do, and they eat a lot of them. All right. They must have bad breath. Dude, a haul-out <laughs> of walrus is one of the nastiest things you've ever seen. I heard rhinos have the worst breath in the world. Rhyme. Like, absolutely horrible. I wouldn't know. 
Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I can only guess that a walrus eating clams all day must be yeah. nasty. It's, it's really something. Well, then what they do is they pull out. They're almost white in the water because they can they constrict their blood vessels. Yeah. But when they pull, get it, climb out onto the onto the, the beach, they find the few sandy spots is where they tend to haul out. Mm-hmm. They go very pink because they warm up. And again, they're trying to improve their digestion by being warmer. So they actually clump up in a big pile. So you're talking 40, 50, 100 walrus in a heap. Yeah. Trying to keeping each other warm, digesting their food. All right. And they burp and fart and poop and like, uh. it gets gross pretty fast. And those tusks are big, man. They're like three feet long and they whack each other. With and them. they're like, Edith, give me a beer. Yeah. It's something like that. She's like, get it yourself. <laughs> but, and the, and the big ones, they don't even try and crawl up the sand. They literally roll. Huh. Back into the water. Wow. Like it was it was very funny. That's really cool. Um, but basically, again, they're, uh, the reason we know they're so big is they came right up to the boat. They're not afraid of us. Hmm. They're curious. Yeah. Soon, when we were in the Zodiac and we turned the motor off, we're just drifting. They swim right up to now us. Now you say the Zodiac. What's the Zodiac? These are little inflatable boats, you know, okay. about 15 feet long. And this is what we'd use to go ashore. Really? You'd go ashore with walrus and polar bears all around? Well, we always had guns. Okay. Right. So both our both our guides are armed. If there was actually a polar bear on the land, we did not go. I see. That's smart. Yeah. And uh, but but that might that makes little trip exciting, doesn't it? it? Knowing yeah, that it uh, absolutely does. That you could be approached by a polar bear at any time. Yes, and we're supposed to scare it away. And if we have to shoot a polar bear because in Norway they're completely protected, we have to phone it in immediately and wait while they send a helicopter up. Wow! Like they're not kidding. It's serious business to shoot a polar bear. Up wow. There. Says they're they're quite protected in Norway. It's good. It's a big deal. Yeah, good. A uh, couple other highlights. We did get to see uh, the one of the largest ice sheets in the world, hmm. uh, an area called Ostfana. We literally sailed that ship past an ice sheet for an entire day, and that ice was fifty to one hundred fifty feet high. Wow. And it just kept going and going. It's calving ice, big icebergs into the water, and so forth. There were whales all over the place. Saw a blue whale. Saw a couple of blue whales. A blue whale. whale. The big one. The big one. Uh, Not real interesting. Big, but not real interesting. It's not like the humpbacks where they'll peek back at you and roll around and stuff. This guy was just working. Yeah. He was, you know, he'd come up, he'd take a few breaths, and then he'd dive down for several minutes, and he'd come back up again. Wow. Um, The guillemots. What's the guillemot? So a guillemot is a bird. Okay. There's lots of birds in that area, but there's one part past Osfana, past the ice sheet, where it's just this huge sheer cliff full of guillemots. And uh, so it's a, the males and females pair up. They make an egg. They only make one egg at a time. And one is sitting on the egg while the other one's getting food. And then when the other one comes with, with food, the other one, fl- the first one flies away again and goes, gets its own food. So they're always spelling off on the egg. Hmm. But once the egg hatches and the bird fledges a bit, like it's getting big enough, the females all bug off. They fly off. They, they, they leave. We're out of here, pops. That's right. And then the male will actually convince the young one to jump into the water. Mm -hmm. And then they practice diving and swimming and getting food in the area. Well, isn't that a women's lib for you? Isn't it sweet? It's very sweet. But they're not, he's not old enough to fly yet. And they're not good flyers. They are like the last bird before the penguin. Wow. Right? Their wings, they really move fast underwater, but they fly very poorly. Yeah, yeah. So the little one at that point is not strong enough to fly. So they actually, once they're, they're sort of got themselves organized, they all migrate by water to Greenland. What? They swim to Greenland. They swim to, and how far is it? 600 miles. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. Let's uh, all swim to, to Greenland. Greenland. <laughs> That's what we were saying. 
By the time I get to Greenland. Isn't that a song by Glenn Campbell? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we're uh, dating ourselves here. Nice. I am anyway. So let's talk about the real challenge with the polar bears. And yes. That, and the, I don't want to do a climate change show yet, but clearly the ice is melting. Sure is. Uh, now, we've done a lot more. The, the interesting thing is polar bears have not been protected for very long. Mm. Right. They were basically open game until the 19... Uh, 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, the first, so there's, there's five countries that ring the Arctic Ocean. Uh, the United States with Alaska, Canada, obviously. Russia. Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Norway, the Svalbard mm-hmm. Islands, and Denmark, which is really Greenland, but Greenland is considered a Danish protectorate. Right, okay. Although Greenland is sort of independently managed the same way that Svalbard Islands are sort of independently managed. Hmm. They have their own governor, they have a different set of rules. And Greenland you know. is not as big as it looks on the uh, no. Mercator pro- projection, does yeah, it? Yeah, it's very distorted, and yeah. the Mercator projection is much bigger than the Svalbard Islands, yeah. but it's not that big. Yeah. Uh, so those are the sort of five countries that have, and they all, most of them have indigenous peoples, mm. right? So there's the Inuit in Canada and, yep. and in all, all the way to Alaska. The Russians have the Chakota. Mm-hmm. And these people at one point or another lived off polar bear and whale and so forth. Right. Like, that's their, their lifestyle. So they had no quinoa. There you go. Just They're saying. Quite quinoa free, yeah. actually. Uh, it was actually the Soviet Union that put the first protections of the polar bear in place in the 1950s. Hmm. They just simply banned hunting of polar bears, mm-hmm. um, which was a little abrupt because it's kind of hard on the indigenous people. But people, you know, for the most part, they just ignore those. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Canada put hunting quotas in place in the 1960s. Uh, Norway started the regulations around the same time. But by 1973, they simply no hunting of polar bear whatsoever. Now, these people, these Inuit and what and native peoples from all of these countries, they do not get to plant vegetation, do they? Well, that far north, it just doesn't grow. Doesn't grow. Right? So these are people who have lived, subsisted on meat, blubber. That's pretty much that's it. That's their food. Yeah, That's their and food. If yeah. you're going to live the the... Indigenous lifestyle, mm-hmm. you know, that's what you're, you're, you're hunting seal yeah. and bear and whale. Interestingly, no heart disease. Huh? Yeah. Well, they, they apparently Coca-Cola is very hot up there these oh, days. Oh, well, okay. Ha- now they have some. They yeah. have some problems. Yeah. Uh, so one of the problems is it's very hard to measure how many polar bears there are. Okay. Uh, polar bears change size so dramatically over the course of a year that mm. trying to put a collar on them, for example, is almost impossible. You'll sure. either strangle them or it'll fall off. Yeah, you're right. Um, there was a couple of studies where they interested just females because they don't change size quite as much. And one of the things they learned is that, that they can swim incredibly far, like literally 100 miles. That they, so they're, they're quite flexible. But the genetic studies of polar bears that we've done in recent times have shown that the we have samples of fossils and bones and things that are more than 100,000 years old that are the same species as the polar bear. So there wasn't a whole lot of chance for evolution to work its magic. Well, but it also says that the polar bear has survived having no ice in the Arctic before. Yeah. Right? Interesting. Of course it has, because we they've lived through they've ice lived ages through and ice warm ages, ages and right? all that. Yeah. So they've been through all these things. And they're genetically very closely related to, to grizzly bears. Yeah. There's they're not that much difference between them mm. actually. Mm. Um but, you know, they have some behavioral difference. Obviously, the color is one thing. Mm-hmm. They they don't, you know, Kodiak bears are about as big as, 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 about as, big as polar bears. So size-wise, they're not that much larger. What's a Kodiak a Kodi- bear? A Kodiak comes from a particular area in Alaska that's very large grizzly bears. Okay. But, you know, typically these bears top out around 1,500 pounds and maybe 11 feet tall. Okay. Which is still a nightmare. That's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. The difference is that 
in, in my experience living in British Columbia, grizzly bears are grumpy bears. Yeah, they don't want anything to do with you. If yeah. the only reason you see a grizzly bear is you snuck off on them, and that's a really dumb thing to do. That's don't do that. That's a really dumb thing. And but grizzly bears also tend to, if they interact with people, they interact aggressively and then they leave. Mm. So they tend to maul and leave. You probably survive a grizzly bear. So what's the advice that if you uh, encounter a, a grizzly bear or a polar bear for that matter, but grizzlies? Are you supposed to, like, stand up and make yourself really tall, get on a rock and scream as loud as you can? Yeah. And it's generally the right thing to do with bears and, and pretty much with all predatory animals is, you know, rule number one, do not run. They have a chase reflex. Yes. Right? Look as big as possible so that you are you represent a risk. Yeah. Uh, that are not it's not worth taking on. Because in the end, uh, wild animals don't want to take chances. They don't have vets. Right. Right? So... Being loud, uh, th- especially with bears, throwing things is remarkably effective because they have a tough time tracking that stuff. Hmm. And so when stuff just sort of hits them out of the blue, it freaks them out. Right. Um, Interesting. But, you know, again, grizzly bears are not something, you know, I live with black bears all the time. Yeah, black bears are harmless. They're yeah. like big raccoons. Yeah. It, they, they, you just go, and they go away. People get killed by, by black bears. Well, you get between a mother and its cub. That's Absolutely. what I've heard anyway. Or, or if they're hungry. Yeah. And, and, you know, starving and they're going to willing to take chances. Typically mm-hmm. your urban bear is fat and happy, right? Mm-hmm. And grizzlies you should never see. The difference with polar bears is that polar bears are stealth hunters. So yeah. you won't see a polar bear. Yeah. It'll, It'll see you. <laughs> and it will hunt you if it's hungry enough. Right. And, and, you know, towards the end of this particular story, I have to say that the last bear we saw was back on the Svalbard Islands. Really? And he was not fat and happy. No. Because so he was one of the ones on a very small ice flow that you took a picture of? He was on an ice flow. I mean, there's a famous photo of a, yeah. of a skinny bl- a polar bear on an ice flow that's sort of, a, you know, all polar bears are dying. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was a thin bear. He was almost certainly a male. But what he was doing is he was working the under... The, he didn't know that he's supposed to be dying, right? Mm. You know, he was... Yes, he was absolutely stranded on an island. It's probably too far to swim back to the ice flows. But what he was doing was looking for food. Yeah. And where he was looking was at the bottom of a large cliff, okay. which was a breeding ground for birds. Sure. So, and he's looking for two things. One is birds fall out of their nests and yeah. they die and yeah. he will eat that. In fact, polar bears will eat almost anything. They eat seaweed, hmm. they eat crab and shrimp, wow. and they will eat bird carcasses all day long. Do they like barbecue? That's bet, a good question. I bet they would. Yeah. And they, even polar bears can be civilized. I don't know about that. Um, but Arctic foxes. During the uh, fledging, when there's lots and lots of birds around on these cliffs, the Arctic foxes will go up and they will kill chicks hmm. and they'll stash their bodies in in groups under rocks hmm. as basically food caching, right? There's okay. only once a year that the chicks all fledge and so you're trying to rack as much uh, food away. It. And so we were Stick watching them in the freezer. This bear was looking for those caches. Wow. Like for me, it was incredibly inspirational yeah. to look at this one, this white bear on these dark rocks working back and forth underneath this cliffside, pulling up these rocks and yeah. eating dead birds. Yeah. Like he was, he gonna, was working it. He was going to make it. He was finding yeah. a way to survive. Hmm. And the issue here, of course, is these are ice bears. And the challenge with polar bears and the ice is that while there's lots of food on the ice, when it goes to making babies, they need to go to land to den. Hmm. So the way that the mothers actually breed is they typically get pregnant in the spring. Okay. And then they, their egg is sort of held in stasis until the ice flows start to break up, typically around August. Mm. And then they'll go to land and build a den. And they'll stay in that den for six to eight months. So they'll, they, they, they'll 
be pregnant and have their babies towards like November, December. Yeah. And their babies are pretty much helpless then. They'll nurse them for a couple of months until they're finally about maybe 30 and pounds then or so. they'll crawl out of the den. They'll break out of the den. They spend a couple of weeks moving around getting used to that. And then they have to head for the ice. That is what I saw on the Discovery Channel because all of my experience of polar bears has been on, you know, HD cable television. Exactly. Back when I used to watch it. But yeah. uh, yes, I do remember seeing these half drunk looking mama bears kind of emaciated coming out of a den after yeah. a couple months with two baby uh, polar bears Typically and just two. tumbling down the snow. Right. Well, and, and part of that is fun. these babies have never really walked around before. They've been in a den their whole life yeah, so and they're far. like, Whoa. So they got to have to learn how to move around. Hey, Bob, watch this. But herein lies the challenge. Mom's only got, mom is not eaten six to eight months. Right. She needs to get herself a seal. Yep. And that means she needs to get to the ice. Yeah. So she's not in a good mood. And, and she hasn't got a lot of time. So the breeding grounds in Svalbard is a set of islands called the Kong Islands. Hmm. That's used to have hundreds of dens and mothers tend to reuse dens over and over again. Mm -hmm. Now there are none. <laughs> because it's so far from the ice, there's no way it. for them to get there. And so what we're actually, I believe we're seeing in polar bears right now is they're environmental refugees. And they're adapting. Yes, they're fine. What they're doing is they're moving where the ice still touches the land. Yeah. And the ice is mostly touching the land in Canada. Oh, boy. So where the no, and this gets into the current problem, which that the only people legally shooting polar bears right now are the Inuit in Canada. Wow. And, and crazily enough, they're actually saying our populations are going up. So we think there's plenty of polar bears. Because that's where they're all going. That's where they're all going. That's the theory. Remember, they're very hard to instrument. Yeah. And up until now, the five countries involved have pretty much measured their own bears. Hmm. But as we're starting to acknowledge that they, Norway just has no bears anymore, right? They're on the pack ice, so there's a handful down there. But there's, there's a reason why polar bears hang out in the water, though. They, they don't want to become land mammals, do they? Well, and so there's an interesting conversation about what is going to happen with the polar bear as the ice disappears. Yeah, right. And remember, they do have grizzly roots, and they mostly hunt seals. When the ice is gone, where do the seals go? Mm. The seals are going to have to go to the land as well. Remember, they pull out because it aids with their digestion. They're That's right. if they pull out. That's right. So they're going to start pulling out on the beach. It's going to be like Monterey. Right. Now, remember, they used to pull out on, they used to pull out on the ice because that way they got away from the grizzlies. Yeah. So as it gets warmer, the grizzlies are coming farther north. Mm -hmm. The polar bears are going to end up hanging out more on land. Mm. And that's where the seals are. So, I mean, there's every chance that they're going to survive, but not very many. You and know? it sure does change the landscape for the people that live there. Well, a lot is going to be different. It's yeah. going to be very challenging. And while, depending on the estimates you look at, there's somewhere between 10,000 and 25,000 polar bears left. Wow. It doesn't seem like a lot. It doesn't. It's not a lot. And the United States for the past 10 years or so has been trying to get the polar bear listed as a fully endangered animal. Same category as the white rhino. Yeah. And the main thing is not don't shoot them at all, but don't sell their parts. Yeah. Right? Right. Get rid of trade. Yes. Because the real thing that's happening up in Canada is not that the Inuit are shooting a lot of bears, right? They are shooting a few. And they're doing that on the basis of cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. Now, cultural heritage means doing it from sealskin boats and spears, and they're mostly using high-powered rifles and skidoos. So we can talk about mm. cultural heritage to some degree. Mm. I, but I'm not going to argue with the cultural heritage part. What, what concerns me is they're selling those licenses to big game hunters. Yeah, that's right. And so it's now a business of shooting a polar bear. You know, I've heard the rationale from big game hunters who you know, go to Africa to hunt a lion that they advertise, you know, like the, this guy who got 
chastised by putting his picture on Facebook, you know, holding a lion or whatever. And, you know, the rationale is these animals were old and becoming a menace to the rest of the the environment and needed to die. They needed to be taken out. These weren't healthy animals that were part of the uh, e- working ecosystem. They were becoming a nuisance. And so that's why they were, but, but, you know, what do I know? And I don't know if any of that's true. I don't um, either. Um, there's also the strong argument that you only get to shoot a bear once. We can take pictures of it many, many, many times. Yeah. And so ecoterrorism seems to be more effective. However, where the ecoterrorism model is working extremely well in and around Norway and could probably work around Greenland, mm. it probably won't work in Canada's far north. Of course. Um, because it's people too, live there. And it's too icy. Yeah. So it's not easy to get ships. You mostly have to go by land. In fact, one of the studies I was reading about the sport hunting of polar bears uh, indicated that sport hunters fail 50% of the time to get a bear. Wow. Remember that, kids. Conditions are very severe. It's hard to do. Right. And so by that token, it wouldn't be a good tourist trip mm. either. My real concern with the whole selling of the of the licenses through the Inuit is I suspect this is benefiting very few people. I sort of equate it to the Indian casino thing. Yeah. It's a group of lawyers that figured out the legal package to take yeah. advantage of Indian rights to be able to run a casino. Right. Which means it's mostly benefiting a group of business people. Right. With a little bit of money going to a few people involved in the in the native bands. Yep. I suspect the same thing's happening up in the Just being the exploited. It's an exploit. Yeah. And we are running out of them. So, you know, there's a case to wind this down and there's a lot of interesting science going. I'm now finding papers just in the past year that is saying we need to talk about the polar region collectively as a whole, mm. that all these countries need to work together. Right. I would point out that the original treaty for to protect the polar bear was which was between Canada, the United States, Denmark, Norway, and the Soviet Union. Wow. Was in 1973. Wow. It was arguably the first agreement during the Cold War between those countries. Yeah. And it was about a bear. Interesting. So we've come together for the bear before. I mm. bet we could do it again. We probably could. Richard, that was just fascinating. And I, I could keep talking for another two hours. I know you could too. <laughs> well, the good news is we're together. So we can yeah. stop recording now. And we probably will. That's right. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a